every week actually uh, when we come together before I preach and put it up on the screen okay I want to read it and pray it and then we'll all do it together make the book live to me O Lord show me yourself within your word show me myself and show me my Savior and make the book live to me for Jesus sake I pray this together. It's, it's just a powerful and yet simple encapsulation of what I do, what we do in this act of coming together to hear God's word. Here we go. Ready? Make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself and show me my Savior. And make the book live to me for Jesus' sake. Amen. So for the next uh, two, three weeks, we are going to be in the book of Hebrews. As was mentioned every year during this season, we drill deep into what really is the foundation of our church, and that is to be in community with each other. And we do it one of the ways in the form of small groups, and I'll get to that. Small groups and getting together weekly with people is not the answer to really finding community. How many of you guys have been in community with people but not really experienced community? Anybody? Of course, all of us. So small groups just a means to something, but I think what we're going to talk about in the next two, three Sundays as we drill deep down into this is at the core of why we create spaces for us to be in community. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of Christians who are struggling, who are going through enormous persecution and suffering. And the author of Hebrews gives them something, and as he gives them something, he gives us something that sustains them, that strengthens them, that encourages them, that gives them actually a firm foundation to stand on. And we're going to look at that today, and I'm going to tell you in advance, what you may think, what he gives to allow them to stand firm in the midst of enormous life pressure and difficulty is not immediately obvious, but it's a powerful truth. Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, if you have your Bibles, open it up. If you do not, the verses will appear on the screen for you. By the way, anybody experiencing some life pressures, know what it's like to experience some enormous, yes, yes, okay. You, verse 18, have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, to gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Thank you, Jesus. 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, how many of you are grateful for a kingdom that cannot be shaken? How many of you are grateful that in the midst of the world that we live in today, that God's kingdom is still advancing, God still sits on the throne, and his kingdom purposes are being fulfilled, regardless of who, yes, anyway. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Did you do that this morning? For our God is a consuming fire. I love that. The author of Hebrews here in these verses is giving us a bit of a history lesson, actually, on how people encounter the presence of God. So he takes us all the way back to Mount Sinai when God's presence came in the form of a consuming fire. And the Bible says that the holiness of God so permeated that even an animal where to approach his presence inappropriate would be killed. Moses, Moses, the one that mediated on behalf of God's people, even trembled, the Bible says, with fear. The presence of God is, is, is fatal, it's traumatic, it's terrifying. How, how, do you, how do you experience his presence? Well, then God gave us what? The tabernacle. The tabernacle. How does sinful humanity approach God in the tabernacle in the presence? And the answer to that is the book of Leviticus. Say what? How many of you have tried to read the Bible from beginning to end? Anybody? Genesis Revelation. Okay, so we start in January. I'm going to read the whole Bible. And you start in January. And Genesis is long, but it's interesting. You know, there's lots of sex, lots of violence. It keeps you entertained, right? And you plow through it, and then you come to Leviticus, and all of our good intentions end. Because in Leviticus, you find rituals and ceremony and rules and details. Rituals and ceremony and rules and details. All kinds of things, hundreds of things about what to wear, what to wash, what to eat, what to clean. And God gives us endless lists of rituals to remind us of our sinfulness and how we are to approach a holy God. Then, of course, we have the amazing news and Hebrews 12, where the author of Hebrews says, here's what Jesus has done. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant. Jesus has entered and given us a way. Check this out, you guys. For this presence of God that one time was terrifying, mountain trembling, that presence of God can now come into our lives. Does anybody else find that amazing? The presence of the created, the consuming fire can now come into our lives and we can approach this consuming fire with boldness. The question is asked at this point, if you're paying attention, how do we experience that presence? How, how do we encounter this this presence of the living God, and the answer is missed. The answer is missed. Why? Because of chapter divisions. What do I mean? 
When author Hebrews wrote Hebrews and Paul wrote his letters, there were no chapters. Did you know that? No verses. Those were put in by editors for reference so that you and I would be able to look and locate. So when the author of Hebrews wrote this letter to these Christians, when he ends chapter 12, he's not done with this thought. He's continually writing. So listen before I read the next verses. He says, consuming fire, tabernacle, Jesus, the presence of God. How do you encounter it? This is what he says. Chapter 13, 1. Keep loving each other as brothers and sisters. If you need to go, next five minutes is what you need. How do you encounter this consuming fire that is now, because of Jesus, coming into our lives? Answer, community. In deep, loving community. You see why I said the answer is missed? Verse 2, which we'll come back to next to, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Another way we encounter the presence of God. For by doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. How do we experience the presence of God? The immediate answer for many of us who grew up in churches is not what we think. The author of Hebrews saying the way that you want to experience the presence of God today is how? In deep community, in deep loving community is how we today experience, this is the old churchy word, Shekinah glory of God. It is in deep community where the Shekinah glory of God comes into and shapes our lives. It's not through performances and rituals, but through deep participation in the life of this radically hospitable, which we'll get to, community of people who've also experienced the presence of God. So if you are that person who says, me and God is all I need, you will not and cannot experience the fullness of his presence. And you actually see, actually, this, this powerful, are you with me this morning? You know, looking at me like, what? You see this being lived out, CC, in the book of Acts in the early church. Over, you see this dynamic happening. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, harken back to Genesis, uh, Exodus, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had powerful move of God's spirit was always accompanied by deep community. It is the extent to which and it is the degree to which you and I are engaged in deep life transforming community that we will experience the move of God's spirit. How many of you believe this?
remember who this is written to. This is written to Christians who are discouraged and disillusioned by persecution and suffering that they're about to give up. And the author is saying simply this, you will never make it in the Christian life without community. You will never make it. I'm just gonna put this out there. Been a pastor for almost 30 years. I have yet to meet a single Christian who grew spiritually apart from community. Who overcame besetting sins and addictions apart from community. Who lived their life on mission apart from community. Simply put, I've yet to meet a Christian who lived the fullness of the Christian life by themselves. Have you? Why don't we do it? And we'll get to that. We'll get to that. There's one other place, you guys, where, 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 where this principle of the move of God's presence and his spirit happening in context of community and relationship. One other place, and I want to take you there. It's familiar for those that have been around New Community for a bit because it also, in the same place, gives us the, one of the powerful metaphors of what community or the church is. And it's found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Where Peter, by the way, who's also writing, I might as well, add to Christians who are suffering and going through persecution and also thinking about giving up. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God, precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. The word spiritual house literally is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You have something to do. Offering spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's one place. Everybody look up here. There's one place in the entire Bible where it says you individually are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Which is funny to me. Because we love talking about how my body, I'm the temple of the, which is true. One place though. You individual. Every other place. When it says you the you are the temple. It's talking about us corporately. You corporately are a temple. By the way, I just want to put this out there. 70% of the New Testament is written to groups of people. All the verbs are in the plural. We westernize individual Christians, read the Bible, and that's why some parts of the New Testament don't seem to make much sense. They're written to groups of people, and the commands are y'all. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's not you individually rejoice. You together. Why? Do you sometimes find it hard to rejoice? Of course you do. He says, you together, when one is hard in our time, rejoice in the Lord. The, re- the reason why we read this and we just go, nah, is because we don't understand the context that what Peter is saying, he was absolutely revolutionary at this time. You see, the radical nature of what Peter's saying is, is, is missed. The Christians in the early church stood out as being incredibly distinctive and unique and weird and strange. Because the first group of people that came along and they said, you don't need a temple. You don't need a high priest. You don't even need sacrifices to encounter the divine. First religion. Every other religion said, well, how are you going to experience Zeus? How are you going to experience Apollo? You need a temple. You need a priest. You need sacrifice. Christianity came along and said, no, you don't. And Peter is saying, what, you don't need a temple? Not necessarily. He's saying, please don't miss this. 
you corporately are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you individually are the living stones being built together. You corporately, people of God, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you individually are the living stones being built together in which the presence of God is present. You are the living stone being built together. Let me ask you something. Can you square this image with someone who just shows up on Sundays and goes home? Can you square this image with someone who comes and says, I'm just going to get my needs met and go home? The question is, and this is everything to do with the presence of God, glory, are you built in? Are you and I interconnected, interdependent? Are you and I, to the people that are sitting next to you, in front of you, so interdependent and interconnected? It's as if our lives are sitting on top and next and underneath each other. It's as if literally our lives are coming in contact with other people's lives in every way. I'm going to tell you something that happened to me this week. And for you, this might be like, eh. For me, it gave me chills. I walked in here, and I was walking around during the week. And God said this. By the way, I don't do a lot of, and God said this, you know that. But I heard God say this. He said, Peter, what is happening in new community physically, in terms of building blocks being laid on top of each other, that needs to happen spiritually and relationally in the church. What is happening in our building and rebuilding of brick, by the way, I found these in a pile of bricks in the fellowship hall. I'm going to return them after the service. <laughs> I literally grabbed it because I heard the Lord say, 
You see what is happening to new community as the church is going through a rebuilding phase of brick upon brick? And he said to me, unless and until each living stone that is individual Christian at new community is also being built one on top of each other, unless what is happening physically is also happening spiritually and relationally, it is to that degree that the spirit will move. It is to that degree that the Spirit of God will move in and through us to transform the city and the world for Jesus. It gave me chills. And the question is, are you this or are you, I gotta put you somewhere. I gotta, I, I'll put you over here. Are you this? Are you, are you, are you someone who is, and by the way, when Caitlin and, and Susie, they come up here and every week they go, you need to attend, you need to give, you need to join, you serve. To me, that's the starting point. That's the minimum of what it means to be built in. This is when you mourn, they mourn with you. This is when you rejoice, they actually rejoice. This is the kind of life that is so interdependent that if you stop showing up, the whole thing will collapse. There are hundreds of churches in Chicago that will be perfectly fine, be fine with you coming and going on Sundays. They, as, they could care less. At this church, I'm going to tell you, Unless we are this, we cannot experience the fullness of God's spirit move. I, I don't want you way back there by yourself. We, we, that's mean. I don't, I don't want to do this one. I include you. We'll, well, I put you. We'll put you right here. Are you this? Are you one of these? Are you someone out there? Let me just draw some principles of that. There's four, and then I'm done. Why is such a powerful metaphor? Why, why does the scripture talk about corporate? Community experience of God, four principles, and then number one, here it is, if you're taking notes. One is you're violating your design by being alone. You're violating your fundamental design by being alone. Do you think when whoever cut this stone out was cutting this stone out, they thought, you know, somebody's going to go to Home Depot and buy one brick. Whoever cut this out envisioned what? A wall, a building. Whoever cut this out didn't envision that someone like me would walk into Home Depot, go one brick, please, just one. The whole purpose of this 
is so that it would be built in a wall. A building, if you will. What does a building do? What does a building do? You live in Chicago. You know what a building. A building shelters you from the elements. Do you remember polar vortex from like three years ago? From the wind, the cold, and the rain. It shelters you. It protects you. A brick by itself can't do that. A brick existing on its own literally is going against the very inherent design when he cuts you out. And one of the things that I love about the Genesis account, the creation account, is that throughout the first chapter when God creates the stars, the moon, the sun, the vegetation, the fish, the birds, it says, he created, it was good. He created, and it was good. And all of a sudden, the pronoun changes. All of a sudden, the pronoun changes. And the only time when the pronoun changes is when God goes from creating all of these things to what? Humanity. Look at what it says in Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. The only time the pronoun shifts is when God says, I'm making you. Why is it powerful? Because the Christian faith says something powerful and profound about God. It says there's one God, but he eternally exists at three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Christian God says God is community. Sit on that. God is community. Central to understanding Christianity is understanding that inherent to God is, is community. We are creating the image of someone who is not just a me, but an us. Community is who God is, and we are made in his image. It's part of our design to be in authentic, vulnerable loving relationships. It's part of what it means to be fully human. We can't be fully human in who we are apart from community. You can't help wanting to be together. You crave it. You yearn for it. <laughs> this need goes all the way back to the beginning. Before the was sin in the world before there was fall. Do you ever think about this? And I say this all the time in the new community. In paradise, in paradise, Adam has everything he needs. He has perfect food. He has, he, has, he has pleasures that any person would be able to enjoy. He has every one of these things at fingertips. By the way, he also had perfect quiet time. He also had a perfect prayer life. He walked with God. And yet, the Bible says, he is alone. He's unhappy because he's alone on purpose. You need to get this. God designed us so that apart from community, we will never experience and fully receive all that God has for us. On purpose, God creates us to need. Let me draw one implication and then move on. I've pastored this church for 15 years, and it's been amazing to me that our people in our church, without even questioning, embrace what our culture says. Our culture says, you want to be successful? Go where the job takes you. Stable relationships? You could always find those, but go where the job takes you. We don't even blink. 
Do you know how often I've talked with leaders in our church who've said, I've had people go, oh, that's where my job is taking me. It's a great opportunity to which I go, but what about the relationships you've built and established and commit invested to here at church? Oh, I'll find them. Four years later, I miss those relationships, Pastor Peter. You are also told by our culture, if you want to be successful, got to sacrifice family. They'll come later, but for now, go pursue your career. How much more clearly can the Bible say without community, none of that matters. None of that matters. None of that matters. Adam has all the pleasures he could ever want, and yet he's unhappy because fundamentally at his core, without community, he doesn't experience life as God intended. Don't you dare put relationships in the back burner thinking that any time you can come back. The real measure of our lives is not going to be your bank account. It's not going to be how many degrees. It's not going to be your achievement. It's the relationships you've invested in and people invested in you. Don't learn this lesson in your 40s. Don't learn this lesson in your 50s. And by God, don't learn this lesson in your 60s. It's part of our fundamental design. Secondly, you can't grow spiritually by yourself. Can I let you in on a little secret? You could ask my wife if this is true. I, I am the most patient person on earth. As long as, shh, 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 I'm not done yet. That's called a pregnant pause. I'm the most patient person on earth, as long as nobody's getting on my nerves. I am the most loving person on earth, as long as I'm surrounded by people who are easy to love. And I am the most humble person on earth, as long as I'm admired and respected all the time. In other words, I am an absolute saint in isolation. But all of a sudden, into isolation, enter people like my wife, like my kids, like community. And all of a sudden, do you know what happens to me? I don't know if I have to you. My flaws, my sins, and my weaknesses that lay in dormant when I'm alone, all of a sudden begin to surface. This is why if you want to grow, community is not optional. You know what community is? It's a vehicle of redemption. Community is a feel. What do I mean? It's in community that my sins and my flaws are exposed, which then causes me to dig deeper and deeper into the gospel of his amazing grace and causes me to then depend on the Holy Spirit for transformation that I could never bring by myself. Community is that place. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, community is that place where I am exposed for who I really am, which reminds me that without the gospel, I am nothing. 
And which causes me to say, Holy Spirit, I need you desperately for growth in these areas. Without community, I cannot grow spiritually. I just can't. I just can't. The author of Hebrews, interestingly enough, in chapter 3, verse 13 says this, but encourage one another, say the following word with me, daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sins, deceitfulness. There are two premises to this verse that I want to bring out in terms of growing spiritually. First is, you have to have people around you who see you so regularly or daily that they see you as who you really are. They catch you just being you. So that means these aren't your fake book friends. These aren't your text friends. These aren't your email friends. Do you know why? Everybody, let's be real today. Those friends, we control what they see about us. Your fake book friends, your text friends, your email friends, you completely control what they see and know about. By the way, am I the only one that is just exhausted from living in a culture that says, project an image that you want people to see and like? Am I the only one? Aren't you, aren't you hungry for a group of people who go, I see you. I see you all the way to the bottom, but I love you. To be fully known and fully committed is the greatest gift we could each offer each other. You have to have people in your life who go, I see you all the way to the bottom. And the only way they can do that is they see you regularly enough that they catch you when you're not image managing. <laughs> By the way, nobody believes the life you put on Facebook, that that's your real life. Nobody. But we're all playing this game. All playing this. Secondly, second premise of this verse is this. You have to also then deputize some people to tell you what's wrong with you. You have to give permission to these people and authorize them to speak truth and love to you. So that you may be hardened. You may, verse 13 says, so that you may not be hardened by sins. What? Deceitfulness. We're all deceived to some extent. I'm just going to put this out there. I don't know my flaws. I don't. I'm not self-aware enough to go, Peter, these are your flaws. Do you know who, do you know how I become aware? Loving people around me who go, that's who you really are. I don't see it. Do you know why? It's the same as, I've given this illusion before. I, I, someone sent me a link to a sermon that I preached. I clicked on it. After five seconds, I had to shut it down. I had to shut it down. Why? Because I listened to it. I go, is that what I really sound like? I'll sound like a, like a screeching chicken. Say, so is, that, is that what I really sound like? I don't know what I really sound like because I don't hear myself. I'm going to ask you something. If you're married, apart from your spouse, do you have people in your life who you've given permission to say, these are your flaws? These are your weaknesses? This is what's wrong with you. Do you have, apart from your spouse if you're married, do you have people in your life that you've authorized and given permission to? 
truth without love isn't truth. But love without truth isn't love either. You cannot legitimately say somebody, I love you, and never speak truth to their lives. This is why we can't be healthy alone. We don't know ourselves. That's why when we live apart from community, we don't just lose others, we lose ourselves. Do you have people in your life that you've given permission to? To say, Carlton, I love you. But I gotta tell you, brother, I see X, Y, and Z. And you don't get defensive. Do you wanna grow? Do you wanna grow? Third, and this is the flip, the, the, side of the, the, the other side of the coin, is that you need validation from outside yourself. You need validation from outside yourself. Why you need community? I've shared this story before. I did it last night. My baby girl, Sophie, she's 10 years old. And one of our rituals is, it is either Jenny or me. She says, hey, mommy, daddy, can you come sleep with me? And she was like three or four. We go lie down next to each other. And then she says, we're about to leave. Can you tuck me in? And once in a while, she'll throw in like a burrito. I have no idea why they, uh, where that came from. She'll tell me as I'll do the whole kiss and I'll blanket over. And the first time it happened, I walked away and I almost started crying because it was almost like the illustration was just like when every single one of us are born, we're born with this ailment that we're not okay. We're not good enough. We're not worthy of love. We're not acceptable. It's like our whole lives I don't know if this will resonate with you. It does with me. It's like whole lives is a desperate attempt to say, somebody cover me, somebody cover me, somebody. This, by the way, is also the reason why we run from community because our biggest fear, I think, is to be fully known and rejected. But here's the thing, at least for me, no matter how hard I tried, I'm 47, I've tried this all my life, no matter how hard I try, I can't seem to tell myself that I'm okay. It doesn't work. I can't tell myself I'm acceptable. <laughs> I don't look in the mirror and go, you're acceptable. Say it with me, Peter. You're, it doesn't work. Anybody try? It doesn't work. No matter how hard I've tried, and I've tried, trust me, I've tried to tell myself, you're worthy of love, Peter. You're, I can't. By the way, have you also noticed how irrational our yearning for other people's validation is? Have you noticed how irrational it is? Why does that person's like on a stupid social platform matter so much to you? Do you know why? We can't tell ourselves that we're okay. You need someone else to tell you. You need someone else to come and go, I see you all the way to the bottom, but I love you. You're good. You're all right. Where do you find that? In community. There is nothing more powerful 
and hearing, I forgive you when I've blown it. There is nothing more powerful than hearing someone say to me, I love you, when I find it difficult to love myself. And there is nothing more powerful for me as a Christian and a follower of Jesus than hearing someone say, I'm not giving up on you, when for months I've thought about giving up. When other people speak truth to us, when other people validate, when other people speak life-affirming words, that is when the love of God becomes tangible and real. How do we survive without being community? Or other people are speaking gospel truth to us. That desire is never going to go away. Never. And fourth, you need a cause greater than yourself. You're living stones, Peter says, built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. What does a priest do? Priest mediated for the divine. A priest was the visible, tangible expression of what the God that they worship was like. And if you've been around new community, you've heard this theme over and over and over again, and that is this. You need a cause larger than just your life because you've been designed to live a life for more than just you. Your life wasn't designed to be lived just for you. If you're living a life just for you, I say this all the time, if you are really and truly living a life just for you, over time, a sense of significance in your life is going to set in. First, it's going to feel like boredom, but eventually it's a sense of insignificance. Why? Because you're not changing anything. You're not making a difference to anybody. You're not influencing anything for anyone. If your entire lame in life is to be happy, you'll never be happy. Happiness as an end is a dead end, my friends. True happiness and joy, ask anybody who's done this, comes from giving your life to something larger than just you and your needs. You and I have been designed and created by our creator to say, I've got a mission and a kingdom assignment for you that goes beyond just your five-second life on earth. And we spent the entire first summer talking about this, Ephesians 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. If you take seriously what the Bible says about spiritual gifts, there are people in here and there are people out there who God has equipped and gifted you to reach and to touch with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nobody in this room is supposed to just come in here and receive gospel ministry and go home. Every single one of us has been called so that we can receive gospel ministry and then give it. You need a cause larger than just you. Do you have one? Is there anyone and anything that you're living for more than just your life? Is there anyone and anything, church, that you're living for more than just your life?
I'll tell you why some of you will not do this, and then I'll talk about why and where our power comes from. Number one, some of you will not because your excuse will be, I don't have time. Dear, I don't have time, people. Can I speak to you for a second? Can we all just agree that every single one of us, that that's an excuse? If you're with me, say yes. Can we just all agree that we prioritize time to where we think is important and a value? It's like I don't have time in our culture has become the all the all-inclusive excuse that's replaced, I'm so stressed. I'm so stressed. We use I don't have time to say I don't really want to do that. I had this very difficult conversation with some people that I love, I won't name, where I said, can we not use I don't have time as an excuse and just be honest and saying, I don't want to do it. The only way that you will make time for community is if you go, in order to prioritize this, I'm going to say no to things that are less important. I don't have time, you do. Can I talk to the I don't want to commit or be accountable people because you want to be free? This is really for the second service where a bunch of our singles show up, so I want to speak to you in preparation for them. I love it when people go, I want to be loved, but I don't want to commit. I want to be free to do what I want to do. I want, and I go, you know those two things can't exist together. Listen, do you really want a flourishing life? Do you really want to be free? Then commit to something. Do you know why? When you talk to people who are in the most flourishing of relationships, they're in relationship with someone who said to them, I am committed to you. When things get hard, I'm not going anywhere. When I see ugly things in your life, I'm not going to run the other way. I am committed to you. I'm committed to this relationship. Do you know what that does? This will be a foreign word to some of you. When you're in relationship with someone like that, that builds trust. Trust is what enables you to be fully known and to be fully loved. If you want a flourishing relationship where you can be free with other Christians, instead of saying, if I have time, say, I will make time. Instead of going, if and when I feel like it, literally you're saying, despite how I feel, I will commit to this. Third, uh, I don't need anybody. Dear, I don't need anybody, people. None of us is walking around today going, ah, air, I love air. What good is life without air? I'll tell you when you need air is when you're underwater and you can't breathe. You will not need relationships unless you're emotionally under and you feel like your life is closing in, you can't breathe. But if you are someone who's not built in relationships in a community of people, when you need them, they will not be there. Do you have people right now that you're investing in? So that when you hit hard times. These people are there for you. Fourth, I don't want to get hurt. Vulnerability is hard, but invulnerability is harder. C.S. Lewis's illustration is the best I can do. You could either risk love, risk getting hurt, or you could say, I don't ever want to get hurt, so I'm going to take my heart, 
put it in this casket, shut it, close it, throw away the key. And he says, in that casket of selfishness, your heart will never be broken. Nobody can get in. But in it, your heart will change. It will become unbreakable, irredeemable, impenetrable. There's only two choices. I'll be vulnerable, risk getting hurt, and experience life as God intended. I don't ever want to get hurt or disappointed again. Close my heart and never experience love. And one more. I thought of it this morning. I want to talk to the, I don't want to have any room, or I don't want to make room people. What do I mean? This is where we're going for the next two weeks. There are some of us, and again, next two weeks I'll talk about this, who are saying, I have all the relationships that I need. I don't need any more. I just want to ask you. There are literally hundreds of people that are going to come walk through the doors of new community. They're going to hear me preach like this, and they're going to go, I want in, I want in, I want community. How will these people find community if the people who are already here could enlarge their hearts in saying, we'll make room, we'll receive you. I just want to gently push and challenge in the next two weeks. What does it mean to make room? so that we could receive folks who are saying, I'm cold out here, I'm lonely out here, how do I get in? For them to be able to come in. Where do you get the power to do this? I'll tell you exactly where you get the power to do this. You need the chief cornerstone. First Peter chapter two, verse six, for it says, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Church, everybody, can you look up here? I'm almost done. This illustration falls a little bit short at this point because I don't have a cornerstone, but cornerstone, ask any builder, it was the most important stone because that's the stone from which the lines of the building projected. You could see the cornerstone of this church, by the way, when you walk out. It also had to be the strongest and most expensive there's no way that what I'm about to challenge you in the next two, three weeks, you'll be able to do unless Jesus is your chief cornerstone. Let me be very clear. I'm not asking, do you believe in him? I'm not asking, do you come to church? I'm asking, is he your cornerstone? Is he your foundation? Is he your identity? Is he your significance? Is he precious to you? Is he precious to you? Jesus is your cornerstone, not just someone you just, he's your cornerstone when you can hardly think without him, when you can hardly feel without him, when you can't make any decisions without him. When Jesus Christ is your cornerstone, everything that you and I do comes out of that. Is Jesus your cornerstone? How does he become my cornerstone? This is how. There is someone who knows us all the way to the bottom, sees us all the way to the bottom, and yet says, I love you enough to do that. I've loved you enough to do that. There is someone who sees us all the way to the bottom and has done that. There is no way you'll give your life for a cause larger than you unless Jesus is your cornerstone.
There is no way we'll commit our lives to a group of people and risk being vulnerable unless Jesus is our cornerstone. And there's no way that we'll sacrifice and be in community in the way that God calls us to unless Jesus is our cornerstone. You have an opportunity in this upcoming fall. You have an opportunity in this upcoming fall to live into the reality of this truth. Are you this? Are you in here somewhere? Are you built in? This morning, before I end the service, it's ironic we're talking about this because I have a very, very important announcement or a communication that I need to make. Many of you guys know Pastor Michael Washington, who's been my faithful partner in ministry for 11, almost 12 years. Pastor Michael informed us, the church leadership, that he's going to be moving on to a new kingdom assignment here this fall. Let me read you just a short portion of his. By the way, I thought the entire week about like, how do I tell them this? When do I tell them this? And so I'm sorry, there's just no good time or good way to do it. So I apologize, church, if this seems kind of abrupt. There's a portion of his letter that he wrote to me in our leadership. After weeks beyond 11 years, it's time to end my pastoral service in new community. Thank you for the opportunities to serve, to contribute to what God has done in the life of the church, and to grow. Please accept my resignation as of August 31st, 2017. I came to new community after the season of Pentecost, and it seems good leaving in this same ordinary time. May we all be reminded of the power and nearness of the Spirit in our work to promote what happened to those frightened disciples turned emboldened heralds. And take care and blessings. Michael was uh, my first full-time hire at New Community. And he wore three, four different hats in all of these years as a pastor. Some of you have already known about this, but he's been a chaplain at Northwestern Hospital for three years, working there full-time. While he served new community. And this fall, he's going to be starting a PhD program at Northwestern, PhD program in pastoral care. He's not here today because his family's moving to Evanston, even as we speak this weekend. Um, he's going to be back to say goodbye and to say thank you. And his wife, Dawn, and Brooks and Bryce. And we as a church want to thank him and acknowledge his service and ministry. So on September 10th, not this following Sunday, but Sunday after, after the nine o'clock service, nine o'clock service, there's going to be a reception before the 11 o'clock for people to stick around and personally say their thank yous and goodbyes. So I want to encourage all of you that have known him to be at the nine o'clock service that Sunday so he could be here to hear him and Dawn say their thank you and also to be able to pray for him. Michael is, to me, the best illustration of someone. As he leaves, the rest of the bricks will feel it. They'll say, he was that involved and integrated in my life. 
And I'm going to miss him dearly. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to myself or Pastor Caitlin or our leadership team. We all stand with me. CC, I think because of time, I just want to pray, okay?